Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Purpose of Life podcast. I am your host, Wyatt Hebblethwaite. And man, Howard Hendrick brings it today. You better be ready. We are on part four of his five-part discipleship teaching. And man, I am stoked, as always, to no surprise. If you haven't been with us up to this point, Howard Hendricks, awesome guy, has an eye patch, taught at Dallas Theological Seminary, doesn't beat around the bush. Um, so you probably pause this, go back and watch a couple other episodes in the lead up to this one. But if you're with me and you're walking right alongside, get ready for part four of Howard Hendricks' Disciple Making. God's method invariably involves a man. That's the miracle of the ministry, God employing human instruments. Warren Webster, veteran missionary statesman from Pakistan, said, if I have my life to live over again, I would live it to change the life of people. Because you haven't done anything until you have changed the life of people. As I understand the scriptures, there are only two things that God is going to take off this planet. The word and people. I hope you are spending your life building his word into the life of people. They are the only thing that will outlast you. For years, I have been intrigued by God's choice of material. I think the reason for this is that it is so contrastive to mine. I ask myself today, why do I choose men? And I discovered that essentially I choose men for three reasons. And perhaps you are a member of the same fraternity. I choose men, first of all, because I like them. They're my kind. I love to handpick a winner. I don't want to be associated with some loser. I want a man who's got a proven track record. The second reason why I, as a human being, choose an individual is because they like me. They appreciate me. They think my ministry is very effective. <laughs> They're very perceptive people great deal of discernment. <laughs> the third reason why I choose individuals is because they are like me. I'm an extrovert. And if you're a horseradish man, then you choose that kind of individual. You want a fascinating thought? What was Jesus Christ like? If you're an introvert, you tend to be attracted to all of the characteristics of quietness in the life of Jesus Christ. If you're an extrovert, you remember vividly, remember what the Lord did? He drove those money changers out of the temple. See, we try to pour Jesus Christ into our personality mold. Jesus Christ was not like you. Jesus Christ is in the process of making you like him. And when the life of Christ begins to work in the experience of an introvert or extrovert, they become the most attractive persons they could ever be. 
Will you turn in your Bibles with me for just a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? For I'd like the Spirit of God to brand your thinking with His basis of selecting material. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For behold your calling, brethren. Take a look at it. That not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, a distinguished queen of England said, I thank God for the M in that verse. He didn't say not any. He said not many. Not many noble are called, but in contrast, God chose the foolish things of the world that he might put to shame them that are wise. God chose the weak things of the world that he might put to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the things that are despised did God choose. Yea, and the things that are not that he might bring to naught the things that are. That no flesh should glory before God. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who was made unto us wisdom. Wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that, according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, God will not Share his glory with another. The secret of effective ministry is to lie low and exalt Jesus Christ. You cannot glorify yourself and him at the same time. You're going to have to make up your mind who's going to get the glory. Now, in our series on the dynamics of discipleship, there is a further question we need to answer. And it's this. How did Christ choose his disciples? Are there any clues in the gospel that would provide a pattern for our selection of the individuals into whom we build our lives as he has commanded us to do? I think there is. And I want to focus your attention tonight on a passage in the Gospel by Luke, chapter 6, verses 12 to 19. Luke 6, 12 to 19. Luke 6 has a crucial context. Whenever you study the scriptures, always climb a contextual tree to get perspective. No verse, no paragraph, no chapter exists in isolation. It all exists in relationship. And one of the reasons why the average person derives so little from his Bible study is that he never gets the kind of perspective that you need in studying a small section of the Word of God. Now we want to focus on verses 12 and through 19, which have to do with the choosing of the twelve. But you will notice that that paragraph begins with an intriguing statement. It begins with the statement, in those days. Now that forces us to go back and find what are those days. Well, let's briefly go back to the beginning of the gospel by Luke. Beginning in chapter 1 and verse 1 and going through chapter 5 and verse 16. May I pause here? to say, don't study the Bible primarily by chapters. I know 
that this has been a pattern for many of you, and that may be a fine place to begin. The chapter divisions were not a part of the original text, neither were the verse divisions for that matter. They were added hundreds of years later, supposedly for the purposes of clarification. But unfortunately, they are frequently very confusing. And you will note this is a case in point. There should be a chapter division between verses 16 and 17 of chapter 5 because there is a sharp contrast. The first five chapters, you have what we call the popularity segment. It's a bandwagon theme. Jesus Christ is ministering to the multitude. People are responding, particularly the common people who heard him gladly. And it's a beautiful sight. But beginning at chapter 5 and verse 17, you need to add, enter the enemy. Because at this point, we come to a second segment in the book which we should title the opposition segment. Now, this is a fascinating study, and one I would highly recommend to you. I was telling the folks on the staff this morning, one of the reasons why the devil defeats you more than you defeat the devil is that he is a greater student of you than you are of him. And the interesting thing about this segment is that it begins and ends with Jesus' ministry to a person. It begins with the man born of four, and it ends with the man with the withered hand. My friends, the devil will not bother you as long as you are merely involved in a program. But the moment you get involved with people, he will cut loose everything in the book. Now, this opposition mounts in this segment until we read in verse 11 of chapter 6 the climactic statement. But they were filled with madness. The Greek word means to see red. It means to lose conscious control of oneself. They're beside themselves. And they communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Now, if you will look in the other Gospels, it spells out exactly what they had in mind. That is, they were plotting to kill the Savior. Now mark the connection. When the enemy decided that Jesus must go, Jesus decides to handpick 12 men and build his life into them. Because there's a sharp contrast in the narrative. Up until this point, his ministry is primarily to the multitudes. From here on out, it's going to focus primarily on 12 men. Up until this point, it has been a quantitative ministry. Now it's going to turn to be a quality ministry. That's why I put that little triangle there because I believe this is the crucial paragraph in the Gospel by Luke from the standpoint of the training of the twelve. From here on out, he's going to spend the bulk of his life, his time, his teaching, his ministry to a handful of men. Now, that's a remarkable statement. Jesus Christ deliberately forsook a ministry to the multitude despite the fact that he was eminently successful. Every now and then I run into somebody who says, well, you know, I, I, I'm not called to preach to the crowds. Well, having heard them preach, I agree. <laughs> but you see, you are not talking about a loser. 
You are not talking about a person who couldn't hack it with the crowds. You are talking about a person who was phenomenal in his ability to move a crowd. And despite that ability, he deliberately chose, as the opposition mounted, to spend increasingly more time with the disciples. Now I want to whet your appetite. Some of you need some clues for further study. And I'd like to suggest that beginning at verse 20 and going through the end of this chapter, actually, the lessons go all the way to the end of the book, he gives to his disciples the four basics. Now, these are not necessarily the basics that you and I are teaching, but these are the basics that Jesus Christ built into the life of his disciples, and they are remarkable. The first thing he taught his disciples was the importance of developing an eternal perspective. Are you doing that for your disciple? This has revolutionized the whole course of my disciple-making ministry. I have been spending increasingly more time infecting a man with an eternal perspective. My friends, if you do not have an eternal perspective, then you can never give a testimony like Marv gave tonight. No way. If you do not have an eternal perspective, when you go back from the Glen, you will be more concerned about what people do to you than about what you do for the Savior. You'll be more concerned about your reputation than your responsibility. The second thing he taught them was to become a servant. My judgment, one of the greatest contributions that the navigators have made to the body of Christ. I have met more servants per square inch in the navigators than I have met in any Christian organization with which I have been associated. It's one of the few groups to whom I minister in which I walk away feeling they have ministered more to me than I ever could have ministered to them. Your servants, for Christ's sake. People who are primarily in business not to get something, but to give something. Serving the body of Christ in a remarkable way. Third thing he taught them was model the Savior. Boy, do we ever need to hear this these days. My friend, the pattern of the Christian life is not the Christian community, which is going to pot. The pattern of the Christian life is Jesus Christ. That's exactly what he inculcated in his disciples. And the fourth basic he taught them was cultivate your faith. Isn't it interesting? That's the only thing he ever rebuked them for. How is it that you, emphatic, of all people, have no faith? You're going to study that tomorrow and see firsthand. How high on the priority list was the inculcation of faith in the disciples? Four basics. Develop an eternal perspective. Become a servant. Model the Savior. Cultivate your faith. I dare you to build those basic principles into the life of your disciples and watch the distinctive difference in the product. Since I have been doing this, I wonder what in the world I've been doing all of these years in the process of disciple-making. See, it's a great thing to come back to the Word of God as we've been doing in these morning sessions and as we've been doing in these evening sessions, you've been doing in your own study, to make some mid-course corrections. This is the pattern. This is the objective standard. Now, let me share with you four or five basic principles that I find emerging from verses 12 through 19. Chase them through for yourself. First principle 
is the obvious principle, but the neglected one of prayer. Will you notice it was after an entire night in prayer that he chose his disciples? It's interesting to chase this through the Gospels because at every crucial point in his life, the text tells you he spent a considerable period of time in prayer. And you will make increasingly less mistakes in handpicking your disciples when you spend increasingly more time on your knees you will pick people that you would have never chosen had you been making the decision yourself. And I'll show you why as we go through. Saturate your choices with prayer. Now bear in mind, in disciple making, you must make choices. You cannot disciple everyone. Jesus didn't. It is humanly impossible for me to disciple 700 and 50-some men. There's no way I can pull this off. And God isn't holding me responsible for doing that. Now, if you are not committed to this, my friend, it's going to lead you to a ministry of frustration rather than a ministry of fulfillment. You're going to be up the walls. You're going to be a good candidate for somebody's psychopathic war. I run into all kinds of people who look like they're just ready to have the boys with the white coats come back up the truck, you know, and take them to a nearby institution. They are so uptight that, man, if you lit a match next to them, they would be the next ones on the moon. Now, this provides tremendous insight into the private life of Jesus Christ. What did he do in private? prayed. That's the secret of his public life. That's why in Luke 11, they get together and say, hey, you know what? Prayer is very important to Jesus. Because every time they found him, they found him on his knees. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus Christ did not begin his disciple-making principles by saying, now, gentlemen, the first thing you need to know is to pray. It's very important to pray. It's a spiritual life, lad. He never said that. He just prayed. And every time they sent out a search party, they found him on his knees until finally they said, hey, you know, this is important. Oh, Lord, uh, teach us to pray. Say, honest to God tonight, would any of your disciples ever find you on your knees? Would they ever find you on your knees enough to come to the conclusion, man, you can't live the Christian life without prayer. Look at my friend. Graduate student at the seminary came into my office some time ago. He saw me on campus, said, hey, Prof, you got a couple minutes? I said, sure, come on up. So he came up to my office. He had a problem, shared it with me. We went to the Word of God, found a few insights that were helpful to him. Before he left, I said, hey, uh, why don't we pray about it? So we got down on our knees in my office, and we prayed together. And uh, after we got through, as he was going out the door, he turned to me and he said, You know, Prof, never occurred to me before, but as you know, I've been here six years, and you're the first seminary professor that's ever prayed with me. Now, you think that's a compliment, but that isn't how God used it with me. He hit me over the head with a two-by-four. And when that student went out the door, I said to myself, Oh, God, is it possible for a student to come to the seminary for six years and never have a professor pray with him? What are we teaching them? I'll tell you, Greek, Hebrew, theology, everything in the world, but not necessarily how to walk by faith. See, that's caught. They've got to get 
close enough to your life somehow to find out that the secret of your public ministry is your private ministry. Your time in the closet. And by the way, that's the greatest preventive against arbitrary, self-centered choices. I like him, he likes me, etc. May I give you a word of encouragement? Will you stop asking people to do you a favor? Ask them to join a fellowship. My friends, I would never ask my students to do for me what I unashamedly ask them to do for Jesus Christ. Because I'm not worth their doing what I'm going to ask them to do. But the Savior is. And I don't apologize for laying down the challenge. But you know, we're forever in our churches, particularly, and sometimes it slips into the navigator organization. You know, we're, we're begging people, oh, come on. It ever occur to you how many times Jesus Christ told people to go home? We never tell people to go home. Oh, don't, don't leave. Was it too hard? We'll make it easier. Man, the disciples came all shook up. They said, Lord, they're all taken off, taken off. He says, good, maybe you should go too. <laughs> oh, Lord, to whom shall we go? you got the words of eternal life. <laughs> That's right on target. When's the last time you told somebody to go home? When's the last time, in honesty, you said to a person, you're right, man, I really don't think you have time. Why don't you wait a while? I don't think you, you're ready for it. That's okay. We'll get together and spend some time, but uh, I really don't think you're ready for this yet. Why don't you pray about it? What do you think about it? No sweat. Watch what happens. The guy goes home and he can't sleep for three weeks. <laughs> Boy, not even going to find a shatter. Because I go, hey, man, where are we going to go with that? <laughs> go with what? Well, you know what we were talking about. Well, you know, I don't know if you're ready. Yeah, I'm ready. Love to do this with laymen. You know, especially men who are committed to achievement. They make some of the finest disciples. And I love to work with them. Six laymen hit me some time ago. He said, Henrix, we've been praying for months that you'll disciple us. Well, I said, I really appreciate that, man. But, you know, I'm, I'm so involved. They said, well, look, Hendricks, you taught us if you're too busy for people, you're busier than God intended you to be. Nothing like having your own messages crammed down your throat. <laughs> I said, yeah, I know, but, you know, I, there is a point of no return. Well, they said, how about praying about it? I said, I don't pray about it. The truth of the matter is I forgot about it. About six weeks later, they said, uh, you've been praying about that? I said, no, as a matter of fact, I haven't. Well, they said, how in the world can you find the will of God if you're not praying about it? And that's when I had the opportunity. I said, okay, but if I go with this man, it's going to be costly. I don't want any of this jazz. You know, you come one week and you're gone for two and the rest of this. So maybe you better pray about it. All right, we'll pray about it. So they prayed about it, came back, said, okay, we're ready to go. I said, all right, I'll meet you next Tuesday morning at 5.30. 5.30? <laughs> I thought you said you're ready to go. We aren't. Okay, that's when I'm ready. <laughs> Boy, the interesting thing is to watch a group of guys, you know, drag out of the sack. See, some of these guys are sacrilegious. <laughs> Sorry about that. Here's a question I want to ask you that I'm asking myself every day. Do you choose disciples because of what they do for you or because of what you can do for them? And I hope you're praying more about the choice of your disciples because you may have some failures. Jesus had one. Did it ever occur to you that he prayed all night and chose Judas? People have asked me over and over again, you know why? I'll tell you one reason why, my friend, and that is a pattern for you. 
And there are going to be some people, let's get honest tonight, let's stop playing games. There are going to be some people into whose life you make the greatest investment who are going to totally tube it. Get yourself prepared for it. And unless you have saturated those choices in prayer, when the guide bombs out, you're going to be up the walls. You're going to be in greater problem than he is. We had one of our men discipling a medical doctor in Dallas who one night shot his wife, an anesthesiologist as well, shot his three children, killed two of them, the third one barely escaped, and then blew out his brains. It's one of the highest medical records in American medical history in his field. Those 12, knew 12 languages fluently, went to the opera and memorized the libretto, knew the whole thing. And this man brought him up here to Colorado for some wilderness camping to get next to him, and the guy started a bite. And my doctor friend gave him a copy of the Living Bible, and the guy read it through, cover to cover, and was beginning to respond. And then it snapped. You know, when I heard that report over the radio, you know what my first concern was? To call up my friend. And sure enough, he wept over that phone. You see, sometimes we have not come to grips with the realities of life. And that's why I have discovered I've got to spend more time in prayer. Not only to keep me from making bumper decisions. Not only to help me make better decisions. But also, when I make a decision that eventually wipes out. I've got some spiritual perspective. This really isn't my business. It's his. Secondly, the principle of exposure. Now, many times people read a passage like this. They have little or no background. And they think, well... You know, Christ was walking down the road one day and said to a group of guys, follow me, and, you know, they took off and followed him. Nothing could be further from the truth. You study back in Luke 3, you will discover the first of two calls that our Lord gave. The first was a general call, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. But they had expo been exposed to Jesus Christ quite a bit before he made that general call. Scholars are somewhat uncertain, but the time period goes from at least one year, and an increasing number of evangelical scholars are saying it may be as much as two years that elapsed between the first call and the second call. So that there was considerable period of time to which they were exposed to the teaching, the healing, the miraculous ministry of Jesus Christ. So he had a lot of time to observe them. They had a lot of time to observe him. And it's interesting to note that during this period of time, they are progressing in their growth. They haven't arrived. They've got a long way to go. In fact, at the end of the book, they're out to lunch. But the pagan world testified of these men, these are they that have turned the world upside down. I don't hear that said of too many people in our generation. See, the problem with Christianity today is that the wrong crowd's staying up at night. In the first century church, the pagans stayed up at night, figuring how in the world are we going to control this sad thing? Today it's the Christians who stay up at night, saying, good night, how in the world are we going to make it? See, that's a vast contrast. Here was a group of people who had not arrived but had been exposed and were moving in the right direction. I wish I had more time to talk on that. Let me give you a third one. I'm only going to give you four of them tonight. You're weary. I can tell. 
So we'll give you a break. This is for the comfort of the saints. <laughs> so some of you who are in the second or third stage of anesthesia, hang on. Third principle I'd like to suggest from this passage is the principle of variety. Now, it's going to be a little hard to choke down, so don't buy it. Just think about it. Study it. You know what I believe this passage is teaching us in choosing disciples? It's teaching us to opt for diversity, not uniformity. You have never seen a wider collection of individuals in all of your life than these 12 men. I hope that you secure the book by A.B. Bruce entitled The Training of the Twelve. This is not light reading. In fact, it takes me longer time to read that than to read any other book. I've read it now, I think, 30-some times and I read it every year. It's the type of book where you read a paragraph and then it takes you the next two hours to meditate and you're just scratching the surface. Bruce was a brilliant exegete and scholar, also a thoroughly committed evangelical. And in this great work that he produced, he goes into great detail to show you how different were the individuals that Christ chose. And in my own study, I discovered he chose a radical and he chose a redneck. How about that? In one crowd. He chose extroverts and introverts. Why, man, there's some of them that never peep. You look all over the place trying to find two statements they made. And Peter? <laughs> Motor mouth. My wife and I were reading in Matthew 17. Go back there and read it. You'll roar. Here they are in the Mount of Transfiguration. The greatest opportunity for any individual life. Listening to Moses and Elijah talking about the Lord's death. Christ transfigured in front of them. And the text says, and Peter answered and said. And I've been looking all over the text to find out whoever asked him a question. <laughs> So he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. <laughs> Boy, that's profound. <laughs> Let's build three lean-tos, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Man, let's perpetuate this Bible conference. We never had a better roster of speakers in all of our life. <laughs> Jesus Christ chose leaders. Man, there are some natural leaders in his group. You can't miss them. And he chose followers who said, Right, Peter, let's go. Which way? <laughs> he chose some very gifted men. He chose some limited men. He chose some sharp men. I think he chose some men who had a vanilla background. <laughs> don't mean to be hard on them. I'm just trying to be honest. I don't know if they had more than 90, 95 IQ, a couple of them. We'll talk about that in a minute. I say, that's the genius of the body of Christ. When I first started out in the process of discipleship, I used to try to get a group of men around me who were just like me, and we blew the thing apart. I had a student in a discipleship group this past semester. I tell you, I thank God upon every remembrance of him. I can honestly say, I don't think the guy said 10 statements in the course of a semester, with the exception of the day when he led the group, and the times when he prayed. We took an evaluation on the part of a group, just independently say, who's the guy that made the greatest impact on the group? And you know who it was? That guy with 12 statements. You've got him in your church board, some of you guys are in the thing. You know, it's the guy that sits there and never says anything. You know, he's listening to everything that's going on, and all of a sudden he opens his mouth. And when he does, you better listen. He's not going to say a whole lot, so you better hang on. Because when he says something, it's going to be very significant. 
Not like those of us who, having nothing to say, say. Well, I can tell that was a little convicting on a few. <laughs> and I'm discovering that the distinctive of the body of Christ, like the distinctive of your marriage, is to be found in its differences. And some of you, for years, have wiped each other out as a couple because you're constantly working your wife over, you're constantly working your husband over because they're not like you. And thank God they're not. See, what attracted you to them in the first place? Well, this guy said, uh, oh, you know, she's just so sweet and quiet. Well, I said, what are you working her over now for? Because she doesn't talk. So he's always saying, we'll talk. I said, man, we could never have two of you in that outfit. <laughs> I was sharing with the couple we were talking today. I am convinced I would have wiped four children totally out of the saddle were it not for my wife. Why, my kids used to come in the back door, you know, and go right by me and never even say hi throw their arms around their mother and talk to her. You know, after a while, that gets to you. <laughs> you know, here I am, great big spiritual me, and they avoid me. Until one day I sat down and said to myself, if I were my kids, I wouldn't talk to me either. <laughs> See, because I happen to be an organized person. I got it together, you know. And uh, my wife, is a very lovely person. <laughs> so person-oriented, you wouldn't believe it. And if you ask her, what have I taught her, she will tell you organization, discipline, getting some things together. You ask me, what has she taught me? Person orientation. People are far more important than your orderly home. You can always clean the floor again, but you can't build the relationship again. Well, the same thing is true in the body of Christ, and we're constantly working each over because we're not like somebody else. And that's the distinctive, that we're different. And we each have a different combination and contribution. The last thing I want to share with you just briefly is the principle of potential. It was Aristotle who said the true nature of anything is what it can become. And how you see your disciples will very largely determine what they become. Think that through. You see them as a problem? You may develop them into that. And some of us are sitting here tonight or standing here because somebody saw beyond the superficial in terms of what the grace of God could accomplish in that life. We got a student in our student body whom I love like crazy. This guy's absolutely out of sight. He turns me on as a seminary professor. I told him one day I'd pay him tuition just to come to class <laughs> for what he does for me. And I was out ministering somewhere, and this couple came up. I used his testimony, and this couple came up and said, you've got to be kidding. This is the right guy. Went to this college. Right. Ah, no way because he was their drinking buddy. He was the hell raiser of the campus. And they got together one day, the group of Christians, typical Christian fashion, and said, who's the least likely to come into the kingdom of God? They universally voted on the same man, the student. And one day I said to him, hey, man, how in the world did you ever make it in this? He said, Prof, you won't believe a couple that invited me over to their beautiful home 
and I was so stupid. I came in cutoffs. I came in bare feet. I came so filthy, I even smelled too much myself. <laughs> and walked in it, and they just loved me for Jesus' sake. And they spent time with me and all of my crazy philosophical questions I used to ply them with, they just listened and hear me out and love me. And one day they said, you know, we've been praying for you. And you know what we're convinced? We're convinced God's got a great future for you. And you know, the guy told me I never slept for 16 nights in a row. Until I came dragging, screaming, hollering into the kingdom of God. May his tribe increase. A student come up at the end of a class one day. He said, hey, prof, I got a problem. I said, great, fire away. What's your problem? He said, why do you think in this passage Jesus chose Judas? I said, man, that's no problem. He said, really? No. I said, yeah, you a greater problem than that. I said, really, what's that? Why he chose you. <laughs> Guy said, I said, in fact, I got a bigger problem than that, and that's how I got into it. I said, I got more scriptural reason for why Christ chose Judas than why he chose me. Now, let's be honest. There are a good many businessmen here. Sometimes they talk to preachers. I don't know if they have the picture, but, you know, you guys are capable and you know what it takes to perform the job in your particular field. Let's suppose you were interested in launching a worldwide enterprise. Would you have picked the 12 disciples? Don't look so pious. <laughs> would you? I think most of us would have passed them by. See, would you have picked Peter? Well, you said, guys, he's a tiger. This guy that opens his mouth, puts both feet into it, wonders why he can't walk. <laughs> would you have picked Thomas? How would you like him, the head of your building committee? He's got a slide rule in his back pocket. Every time you bring up an idea, he's got 17 reasons why it won't work. Show him a donut, all he sees is the hole. Tremendous guy. And my dear buddies, Philip and Andrew. I don't mean to be hard on them, but I think these are the guys who had a very ordinary IQ. And you can see it in action. Boy, here they are in this deep theological discussion in John 14, old Philip's lost. He's got his ball out in the weeds. And finally, he interrupts his great theological discussion and says, Lord, <laughs> show us the Father. That's enough. <laughs> That's his mentality. <laughs> By the way, it was Philip and Andrew who had their nose in that little kid's lunch pail. When the Greeks came to see Jesus, to whom did they go? Peter and John? Man, no, they'd still be in committee making that decision. They came to Philip. You want to see the Lord? Sure, come on. And the interesting thing is, the only two men who ever led anybody to Jesus Christ, as far as the record is concerned, is Philip and Andrew. Now you go down the list and you say to yourself, good night. Why did Jesus Christ choose them? I'll tell you why. For the same reason you ought to be choosing people. You don't choose people on the basis of what they are, but on the basis of what they are to become by the grace of God working in you, working in them. I had a student a few years ago. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you what goes through the mind of a professor before an hour begins, I'll tell you. I used to sit there and think, man, what in the world is going to happen to you? 
This guy slept through most classes. He might as well have slept through all of them. He finally was graduated. How? I'll never know. Some of our students graduate magna cum laude. Others graduate laude. How come? <laughs> this guy's in the last classification. He takes a church in Canada. He takes a church that 17 men in a row walked away from as hopeless. And when I heard he took it, I thought, well, that's par for the course. He doesn't know enough not to take it. <laughs> he took this thing, began to work in there, and one day something happened to him. A dear man had his wife and four children wiped out in an automobile accident. Called him up and said, Pastor, the Lord's taken my entire family to be with himself. And a guy hung up the phone and said, good night. i got to go over there. What in the world am I going to tell this guy? And he stayed away as long as he could until finally it got embarrassing. And he went over there only to find that this layman ministered to him because he really had nothing to say. And that's when God broke through in this guy's life. You know that fascinating story that Leroy shared with us about that church down in the south with eight members? It was a similar story. He began to preach the word. This guy began to go out with laymen, training them. He didn't know how to do it himself, so he's really learning and rude, he told me later. Sharing Christ. And they began to see people. And wherever I went across the country, I kept hearing about this guy. Has he got the right guy? Spell it. <laughs> Dallas, right, that's the man. One day he wrote me a letter. He said, hey, Prof, I understand you're coming up in our area. Would you do me a favor? I said, if I can. He said, would, would you come preach for my people? I'd love my people to hear you. I'm going to be out of town on this Sunday. I said, man, I'd love to preach for you. I'd like to see it. And I walked into this church, 120-some years old. When he first took it over, it was smaller than when it was first organized. Tremendous progress. <laughs> the place was jammed to the doors. It was a building program. It was so crowded, the people were standing around the back. And when I got up to preach, I gave a guy my seat so he could sit down. <laughs> and after I got through preaching, this deacon came up and said, well, that's pretty good preaching, son. <laughs> he said, by the way, have you ever heard our preacher preach? <laughs> Boy, I came back to seminary with a new lease on life. Now, hear me. What am I doing? Setting up a monument to mediocrity? God forbid. What I'm saying is that in 24 years teaching in a theological seminary with a group of colleagues I highly respect for their evangelical and biblical commitment, we have set no track record for determining who will be the winner. Because, my friend, you can't make those choices. Unless God is working through you, and particularly in the life of your disciples, you are laboring in vain. And God's not about to share his glory with you or with anybody else. The miracle said he wants to use you. I hope you never recover from that. Man, I hope you go back from here, you know, 10 feet off the ground, just with a realization. Think of it. God handpicked me to be his representative to this generation. Loving Father, your word is forever settled in heaven. Thank you for preserving it down through the centuries that we might have a more sure word of prophecy, that we might have a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And through these days you have been ministering deeply to us. We've been drinking at the fountains of your word. 
and our thirst has been quenched, and our hunger has been satisfied. We cry out with the disciples, Lord, we believe, but help thou our unbelief. Thank you for the privilege of being your men and women in this particular generation. Thank you for the privilege of ministering to people and marking them, not only for life, but for eternity. Thank you for the people who ministered to us. We reflect upon those who have so deeply made a deposit in our lives and how grateful, how eternally grateful we are. So thank you for the part, for the privilege of being a part of that team. Give us grateful hearts, obedient hearts, hearts that are very sensitive to your direction. For Christ's sake, we ask it. Amen.